there's just times when I think to myself, I wish everyone was just like me. Maybe you've thought that as well. No, no, not everyone like me, but about yourself, because we know you're not thinking that. But at some point, I'm sure you've thought to yourself, if they just thought the same way I did, this would be so much easier. Well, it's pretty clear this morning from life experience, it's pretty clear this morning by just looking around the world that we don't all think the same way. There's a lot of differences. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of different ways of living. There's a lot of different ways of thinking. And it seems to be that it's growing more and more, that there's more and more differences. Specifically in our country, it has changed over the last 40 to 50 years dramatically. 40 or 50 years ago, you asked someone what religious affiliation you had, you usually came down to one or two places, Protestant or Catholic. Over the next, next, about 20 years ago, it came down to Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, or nuns. Nuns mean, not Catholic nuns, but nuns being no affiliation of sorts. Now it's changed drastically even from that. You have Catholic. You don't really have Protestant anymore. You now say mainline denomination. Or you have non-denominational. Or you have none. Or you have atheist. Or you have other Hindu, Muslim, Unitarian, whatever. It's, it's grown quite a bit. Now, not saying at all that 50 years ago we didn't have the whole spectrum. We did have the whole spectrum 50 years ago. The nuns were just closet nuns. They were still going to church on Sunday morning because their boss expected them to go to church on Sunday morning. It's not like there's a lot less Christians today in America than there was 50 years ago. It's a cultural Christianity has just changed dramatically. There's not a common religious language that's used in society anymore. Culture is changing and shifting rapidly. There's a lot of differences in our society. Even here in Sioux Falls, it's reported that there are at least 39 atheists in Sioux Falls. That would probably be a minimum. 39,000 be 40,000, that'd be about a quarter. That's not, a, yeah, about a quarter of Sioux Falls. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be up to around 40 to 50 percent. That's a, that's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in Sioux Falls that believe something drastically different than you. There's a lot of people in Sioux Falls that not just believe something drastically different than you. There's a lot of people in Sioux Falls that actually believe something that is in opposition to what you believe in. There's a lot of people in Sioux Falls that don't just believe in something that's in opposition to what you believe in. There's a lot of people in Sioux Falls that believe that you shouldn't be able to believe what you believe. There's a wide spectrum, and things are constantly shifting and changing. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's reality. I don't know about you, but I know I've been having a lot of personal wrestling matches lately about, well, where are things going with culture, and how do you protect yourself? How do you protect your children? A couple of weeks ago, this is the first time this has ever happened. A couple of weeks ago, I said to my wife, I said, hey, Maybe you should look into teaching at a private school so we can take our kids out of the public school. I'm a big proponent of the public school. I believe we've got the best school system in the state of South Dakota. I believe we've got a top 10 school system in the whole United States. Big proponent of the public school system. 
but I was thinking to myself, okay, things are getting a little bit difficult. We've got to now take into consideration, do we need to protect our children a little bit? I'm just sharing with you the internal wrestling match that I'm having. I'm sure you're having an internal wrestling match in the same manner about different things that are maybe going on at work or within your family or your neighborhood. Well, how do we live in the midst of all of these differences? Specifically, though, this morning, how do we treat someone who believes something differently than us? For the lack of a better term, we're going to label those people this morning the way that the Apostle Paul would in Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, it's not popular or it's not good to call somebody an outsider because what? That's not very welcoming, but that's reality. According to Scripture, there's insiders and there's outsiders. Outsiders would be defined here in Colossians as people who are not part of the people of God, or if you remember, the first verse in Colossians was to the saints. In other words, an outsider would be someone who's not a saint. Remember, a saint is not someone who's perfect. A saint is a Christian. Because of Jesus' righteousness, they're declared a saint. So really, an outsider is anyone who's not part of the people of God. To really get simple, an outsider is anyone who does not profess faith in Jesus Christ. That's who Paul would have been talking about. He's kind of finishing his letter here saying, hey, you've got to walk in wisdom towards the outsiders. Well, how do we treat those who are outsiders? people who don't believe in Jesus, people who are against Jesus, people who are simply apathetic. They don't really care what they believe. They don't care what you believe. How do we treat those people? This morning, we're looking to God's Word to give us a vision, an understanding of how should we treat others who are different than us. So this morning, I want to take a moment and kind of take a look back and ask, let's see if we can see God's heart. God's vision of how God historically has wanted his people to treat people who are not part of his people. How does God want his people to treat people who are not part of his people? A lot of people have a following vision that God in the Old Testament was this. Hey, if you're not in Israel, you're not just out, but you're really out. God's going to crush you. God's going to kill you. Did that happen? Absolutely. There's times in the Old Testament where God killed people. God killed towns and villages, thousands of people that were not part of the nation of Israel. He did that. We can sometimes not understand exactly why or what when all happened there, but it's reality. But that doesn't reveal exactly all of God's heart of what God wanted from his people. So if you look with me, if you have your Bible, we're going to take a little journey this morning into some places maybe where we normally don't look. We're going to start in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19 Most people think of Leviticus as the most unfriendly book in the Bible. And most would say, if you're talking to someone outside the church, don't let them read Leviticus. I mean, you want to drive somebody away, send them to the book of Leviticus. But let's look in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, God's giving his people rules here for for very simplistic things. He's telling his people what they're supposed to do. Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34 Leviticus 19, 33, 34. So again, you got the nation of Israel, a people group that God is instructing on how to live as his people. And he says the following. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This just gets 
washed over. That Actually, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel in the Old Testament were very evangelistic. God had an evangelism plan even for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That evangelism plan was hospitality. That was when there was people living amongst them that were not ethnically Jew or they were not part of the people group to start with. They were still supposed to be treated how? As though they were native among them. In other words, as though they were originally part of that people group. In other words, what? There's no special insider deal for the people of Israel. The outsiders who were living among them were supposed to be treated like insiders. Now, if we read on in the book of Leviticus, it gets even a little more interesting. As God gives them direction for their harvest, He tells them, hey, as you're harvesting, don't go to the edges of the field. So in other words, it's kind of like if you drive down a country road, you see a ditch, and the farmer's planting corn right up to the point where the ditch goes into the field, right? They just plant right up to that point, and they harvest right up to that point. God is saying here in Leviticus, hey, when you harvest, leave a row next to the ditch that's unharvested. What? Can you imagine a farmer doing that nowadays, right? Leave a row. No way. That's pure profit. Well, he says to the people of Israel, leave the row for who? So the stranger and the alien in your midst can harvest from that row because God wanted the people provided for. And he provides that direction right in Leviticus. I believe it's in chapter 24 or 25. Again, it's something very practical and simple, but what's the heart behind it? The heart is treating the stranger or the sojourner, in other words, ones who's just coming for a little bit, as one who's native, one who's actually an Israelite. So again, God's heart, we're just trying to get a picture of God's heart. I think it's pretty clear here that God's got a heart for the stranger. And the stranger would be someone who's what? Different. These are not people who believed in the God of Israel necessarily. These are people who would have been unclean or impure according to the law of God. But God's law still says to them, hey, treat them as though they're a native. Now, look with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Many of you may be familiar with Jeremiah 29. It's the most... uh, misused Bible verse. I'll say that frankly this morning. Jeremiah 29, 11 in the Bible. Jeremiah 29. You probably all know this verse. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper and to flourish. And we plaster that all over the place as though God is saying to us, we're going to have everything that we want. You got to look at the context of this verse. It's vastly, vastly different. Jeremiah 29, Look with me, if you would, at the beginning of verse 4. This is the pro- God saying to God's people who are in exile, which means they're not in their home country. They've been, a king has come and taken them out of their home country and taken them to another country. In other words, they're basically slaves. So Jeremiah 29, 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, the Jewish people who have been taken, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is, This is crazy. So God lets his people be stolen from their land, 
and then they go to this other land, people who are basically enslaving them, and what does God say to his people? Hey, live so that the city that you're in flourishes. These people, this city of Babylon, they don't care about the God of Israel. They're actually opposed to the God of Israel. And God says to them, bless them. Seek their good. Seek their best interest, the goodness of their city. Plant gardens. Let them share in your produce. This is radical. God's not saying, hey, get out of there as fast as you can, and as you're leaving, leave it in the worst shape possible because they deserve it. No, God says, they might deserve something else, but guess what you're going to give them? You're going to give them your best. You're going to plant gardens, and you're going to bless them. So God's idea here is for his people to treat the stranger, the one who's not part of the people of God, in a radically different way than how we normally think of treating someone who's different or who's even opposed to us. God's heart is for the stranger. God's heart is for the person who's not in the people of God, that they would be blessed through us. God's perfect plan, Jeremiah 29, 11, is that the people of God are what? Planted in a city and blessing those other people. So we see in the Old Testament, God's heart for caring for people who are completely different, even opposed to the people of God, is not give them what they deserve, but rather it's what? Give what's for the common good. Seek the welfare of the city. You and I should hope Sioux Falls flourishes. You and I should hope America flourishes. You know, everybody's running around, oh, the judgment of God's going to come on America. And, you know, a couple of years ago, it was New Orleans is getting what they deserve with these floods. All the No, we should be praying for the opposite. God, even on this unrighteous farmer, I pray that their crop would flourish. We live for the welfare of our city, of our country. How we treat people does not depend upon what they believe or their ethnic heritage. That's not the heart of God at all. Now you're saying, oh, that's Old Testament, Pastor. That's the people of Israel. Let's look at Jesus then, where I think we can have some common ground. Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus puts it, we could have started here and ended here. He puts it clear as day. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. Maybe you know this as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Stop right there for a moment. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, Hey, this is the common teaching in religious circles. This is what you hear in your city. This is what you hear from everybody. And everybody agrees, yeah, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So Jesus says this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pretty clear. Jesus says, hey, the world says you can hate those who hate you. I mean, it makes sense, right? 
If they don't like you, you don't have to like them in return. Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. You've got to love those who dislike you. Not just love those who dislike you, but those who persecute you. Those who are opposed to you. This isn't easy. No, nobody says it's easy. Nobody says it's, it's clear and, and easy to figure out how and where and when. But the overarching command is clear. Someone hates you doesn't give you the right to hate them in return. Someone believes differently than you and believes wrongly according to the Scriptures doesn't give you the right to treat them improperly because they believe the wrong thing. Our foundation is completely different. We do not treat others how they treat us. We don't even treat others how we want to be treated. We treat others how God tells us to treat others. And how does God want us to treat people who are differently than us? He wants us to bless them. He wants us to love on them. Now, this is complicated. This gets really tough, especially when sometimes you're loving someone, that person thinks you're affirming them. It can get messy. You can love someone and, and they think, oh, this person agrees with everything. I agree with No, we, we don't, but we're still going to love you. That's not an easy message. But guess what? It's not our responsibility to clean it up. God doesn't say you've got to make sure it's really clear that they know you're against what they believe, but it's also really clear that you love No, no, he just says love them. If it gets messy and they don't understand, hey, there's nothing we can do. We're faithful with what God tells us to do, and we've got to get comfortable with that. Every single day we're constantly interacting with people who are different than us. I believe God's heart is this that the outsider and the insider should both be recipients of our love. The outsider and the insider should both be recipients of our love. Now, there's no VIP treatment for the insider. This is where it gets interesting. The insider, the person who's a follower of Jesus Christ, there's no special treatment for them. It's not like, hey, I'm extra kind to you because you're a member of our church. Okay? That's bad thinking. That's sinful thinking. But there is actually special requirements for the insiders. See, the New Testament says, judge those who are in the church, but not those who are outside of the church. 1 Corinthians 5 says, hey, if there's immorality among you, you need to stand up and say something about the immorality among you. But why are you yelling about the people who are immoral out there? Why are you saying, oh, I'm so frustrated by the world being the world? They're behaving how they're supposed to. I mean, why do we get surprised when the world acts like the world? It's the way they're supposed to. It's the way the Bible describes the world's going to act. Where we're supposed to get fired up is this, when the church doesn't act like the church and the church acts like the world. So the insider benefit is this. You get extra accountability and you get extra discipline. Sounds like good membership benefits, doesn't it? That's going to sell. Come join us. You have to be accountable and you get disciplined. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is where the insider enters into a life of discipline and accountability, but the outsider gets the blessings of kindness and caring and love. It's radical. It's not something that humans could have made. It's only something that the Creator could have revealed. There's no other religion like it because all other religions 
are human-made. God has revealed His heart. His heart is that His people would treat other people who are differently with love and kindness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 4 that we read earlier. Be wise towards the way you act toward outsiders. Wisdom is this, knowing what to do when the rule book runs out. Knowing what to do when the rule book runs out. Okay, wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge that you have from the Bible that says love your neighbor and how to implement that in specific situations. It doesn't take wisdom to stand up and not lie because it's pretty clear, don't lie. Okay, don't lie. But it takes wisdom on how to be kind in specific circumstances and specific situations. The Bible doesn't deal with every situation that comes up in our life. So Paul is saying here, hey, you got to be really discerning. Take God's truth and you got to find a way now to apply it in that specific situation with people who are not of the faith, the outsiders. And then he says, hey, make the best use of time. Well, this makes it a little bit interesting. He says, making the best use of the time. Why throw that on there? It's because the outsider only has a small window of time. That when we're interacting with people who believe differently than us, when we're interacting with people who are not of the faith, guess what? We're dealing with a finite human being that has a very small window before what? It's done. It's done. Whereas followers of Jesus Christ, you're an eternal being. You're going to live for eternity. Time no longer, for me, time is just, I don't know, a human invention. It's just a clock. But for an unbeliever, time is a big deal because they only got so much left. That's why Paul says here, Make the best use of the time because you, you might only get a little bit. You've got to use each opportunity. And then what does he say next? Let your speech always be gracious. I could just stop right here, I know, from my own heart and my own mind. I mean, how many times have I spoken unkindly about someone who believes something differently than I do? How many times have I written something unkindly about someone who's done something that I believe differently about. Just because they're doing something wrong does not give us the authority to speak unkindly about them. Paul says here, actually says, let all your speech be gracious. In other words, let all of your speech be favorable to the undeserving. What's grace? Grace is undeserved favor. We say that God is graceful to us. It means that he's giving us his favor and we're not deserving of it. And now Paul's saying, hey, let your speech be graceful. In other words, speak with favor on those who don't deserve you to speak with favor upon them. How radical is this? You know that president that you disagree with right now? Guess what? You need to speak favorably of him. You know that neighbor that you don't like right now? You need to speak favorably of her or him. Not because, oh, pastor said so. No, God's Word says so. Right here in Colossians 4.3, let your speech always be gracious towards those who are outsiders. A couple years ago, before we moved into the current house that we lived in, lived over kind of by Sanford Hospital a little bit, and uh, lived there for about five years, and I had a back door, backyard neighbor who I got to know kind of over that time. That backyard neighbor, as I came to know them, had a variety of medical challenges. And as I got to know them, 
uh, he told me that he became a Jehovah Witness a couple of years before I had moved in. And that led to some interesting conversations. So I asked, I said, how did you become a Jehovah Witness? And he said, well, I had a car accident. When I had a car accident, I was in the hospital for multiple days. And as I was in the hospital, the only people that came and visited me were Jehovah Witnesses. So I became a Jehovah Witness. Makes a lot of sense. That, that's heartbreaking in and of itself to know that there's, there's other groups that are on the march way more than we're on the march. But that's not actually where the story ends and where the most heartbreak is. His wife, who had actually been pretty much kind of a, a faithful Protestant, you could say, going to church quite regularly, grew up in the church. After her husband became a Jehovah Witness, she just kind of stopped going to church. But then, as she was at work, and the people around her found out that her husband was the Jehovah Witness. Now, here's where it gets complicated. He had a medical condition when he was in the hospital that basically took away a lot of his memory. So when you had a conversation with him, he had a little notebook that he would write down on. So that when you came back to talk with him, he could pull it back up and remember where the conversation was. So he became a Jehovah Witness, and friends of the wife found out about this and found out what they're doing. Well, the friends at work started to make fun of her husband. Started to mock this idea, well, why in the world you become a Jehovah Witness? That's absurd. Their teachings are absurd. da 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 And then she, she kind of explained the medical condition. And then the people at work, what? Started to kind of say sarcastic comments about the medical condition. And that's why, oh, well, of course, that's why, da-da-da. Well, what does she do then? She also now goes and joins the Jehovah Witnesses. Why? She was driven there by the treatment of others. But she was also driven there by something else. The lack of treatment from Christians. Forget the negative treatment for a second that she received at work. There was no positive treatment from any Christians in her life. There were no Christians that were on the offensive. So I was talking to him, and I said to him, we were talking, and again, you're, you have to redo every conversation basically every time. So we were talking one time, and I asked about his extended family, about, well, what did the other family say then when she, she did this? And, and he said, the rest of the family didn't talk to us anymore once we became the Jehovah Witness. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, we witnessed to them. When we started witnessing to them, they just pulled back basically and stopped. And I, and I just kind of asked the question jokingly one time. I said, well, didn't they witness back? No. He had family members that pulled out of the relationship. There's a lot wrong and a bundle of heartbreak in both directions, in a variety of directions. But it all really comes back to this fundamental thing of how do you treat others who are different than you? Do you know what happened to the family, I believe? The family got scared. And so they pulled back. The family got scared. They, they were right that their family members began believing something that's wrong. Their family began to following something that's untrue. And so the family, family pulled back. Didn't want anything to do with it. But something was lost in the midst of that whole process. I guarantee you, 
I bet, I'll bet you my car, my house, that there was a Christian in her workplace. There's, there's a Christian in every workplace in Sioux Falls for the most part. There was a Christian in her workplace. Where was that Christian for her when all of this was going on? It's in your neighborhood. It's in my neighborhood. It's in your workplace. It's in my workplace. It's in your family. It's in my family. People who believe drastically different things than us. People who are outsiders from the people of God. The question is, are we going to treat them as outsiders? Or are we going to say, wow, look at the heart of God. It's revolutionary. It's amazing. He actually wants us to treat the outsiders completely differently. He wants us to love the outsiders. That's the heart of God. Is it messy? Yeah. <laughs> Get ready. It's going to be messy. It's going to be messy to be in relationship with a Muslim neighbor. It's going to be messy to be in relationship with an atheist coworker. It's going to be messy to sit at the Thanksgiving table with a Jehovah Witness brother or sister. It's going to be messy. But guess what? God wants us to stay in the mess. God wants us to be His representative in the mess, loving them the way that He has loved us. Christianity is this odd duck where it's extremely exclusive only through the person of Jesus Christ. Yet at the exact same time, Christianity has this inclusive element to it where we love and care for those who are not part of the exclusive people of God. Let it be said of us that we were exclusive, Jesus only, but at the exact same time, we were inclusive. I'm going to care and I'm going to love even those who are not Jesus only. Let us pray. Almighty God, Lord, help us with this. This is, this is hard, Lord. There's, um, there's family members in, in all of our families right now, God, that don't believe in you. We have family members that um, are opposed to you. We also have neighbors and coworkers, God, that uh, are believing things that are made up. So, God, give us wisdom. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to fulfill Paul's command here to be gracious in our speech. And, Lord, I pray that we could also be representatives of your heart in the way we care for the stranger, in the way we care for the people who are different than us. So God, I ask today that you would do something messy in our lives this next week. God, I ask this next week that you'd bring each person in this room in contact with someone who's completely different. God, I ask this next week that you would take the people of King of Glory and that you'd put them in relationship with the Muslims that are here in Sioux Falls. I ask that you take the people of King of Glory this next week and put them in relationship with the atheists in Sioux Falls. God, make our lives a mess. God, give us an opportunity to spread your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We now move in our worship service to something that is completely exclusionary something that is only for the people of God.
But even this thing, which is completely exclusionary, reminds us of who we once were, sinners far from God, which then reminds us of how we should love on others so that they can experience what we've experienced. Jesus gathered together with his followers the night before he was betrayed. And as he was gathering together, they had a meal. And after the meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the, is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for forgiveness of sins for the whole world. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. All are invited to come to the table. Those who have said, Jesus, You are my Savior. Those who have said, Jesus, I have sinned. Jesus, I want You to save me. You're invited to come and receive the bread and then dip that into the juice and be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf to be reminded that you're a forgiven sinner, to go out and to love other sinners how God has loved you. Let us take a moment to pray and ask God to examine our hearts, ask that God would cleanse us, prepare us to receive his gift. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would examine our hearts, that you would make known in our lives times when we've been ungracious, make known in our lives times when we have neglected your word. And God, I pray now that you would cleanse us and that you would renew us. Lord, I pray that you would take your body and your blood this morning and you would refresh us. That you would restore us to relationship with you and to one another. God, thank you for your sacrifice this morning. Thank you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.